stretch out the legs. Welcome everyone. So I'm going to talk a little bit about concentration in a couple minutes, um, but I thought we could begin tonight with maybe a short check-in about meditation. And, uh, you know, it's so important to keep grounding these teachings on the five faculties with this engine of awakening. That's the whole idea that we come to, for example, a sit, like tonight, with some amount of confidence that the practice is relevant. You know, we're inspired to some degree, inspired enough to sit still, inspired enough to bring the attention to the breath or to the present moment inspired enough to follow the instructions. And, it, you know, just understanding that process in terms of that efforting and the continuity of mindfulness, awareness of the body, of the feeling tone, of the mind, the qualities of the mind, aware of the wholesome and unwholesome qualities of mind that arise in the process of being mindful of breathing, These are the four foundations of mindfulness. This is what the Buddha means by being mindful. And noticing the qualities of concentration. You know, this particular tipping point where in the process of being awake to the sensations of breath or the other qualities that we're noticing, there's an inner joy, like the non-distraction itself is really pleasant. And so instead of, uh, there's that transition or that tipping point, initially there's a uh, a willful efforting to keep bringing the attention, connecting and sustaining attention. But at some point, because of this inner joy that is associated with the attention, the quality of mind coming together, then the mind wants to keep coming back. It's not like it needs to be directed back. So we'll talk about more of that tonight, um, looking at how the Buddha talked about concentration, but just any comments about sitting practice and this engine of efforting, mindfulness, concentration, how they're working together, questions you might have about the mindfulness of breathing instructions. Yeah, Paul. <clears throat> well, I have a kind of a very detailed question. I noticed when I was doing a rising and ceasing. Is that one of them? Said? Patty, would you shut the fan off? It's on the thermostat, the middle button on the bottom. Yeah, uh, that's the. 
Yeah, the 13th one, right? I noticed that, like, it's kind of hard to follow the arriving and ceasing at the same time. Everything is going kind of so fast. Can you keep applying attention and more attention? It's like, it's just really hard to distinguish what's arising, what's falling, what to pay attention to. But then, when you went to just ceasing, and noticed everything just kind of slowed down. And I don't know if this is just tickets to my mind, but I noticed kind of a, a motion of like this, thoughts arising like in a hump, falling in a hump. Mm-hmm. And the ceasing is on the right side of my brain, the rising is always on the left. <laughs> <laughs> Am I concentrating too hard? <laughs> and yeah, so the ceasing was a lot more interesting because I don't think I pay attention to it. It's a lot easier to pay attention to the arising. Mm-hmm. I notice arising very quickly, but the ceasing is kind of like, oh yeah, well, of course it's going to cease. But let's see what arises next. Yeah. So, I don't know, I just noticed paying attention to the ceasing was really interesting and more relaxing. That's right. Generally speaking, I think it's generally true that awareness of arising is energizing, and awareness of ceasing is calming. And, you know, that's why it's interesting when people think about death um, appropriately, it can be very calming. You know, the fact that we're going to die, actually, if we get beyond uh, any fear that's conditioned in the mind, it's really calming to remember cessation, that things are going to end. Because it doesn't make sense to get attached anything if we know that they're going to end. But the instruction actually is to be aware of inconstancy. So the Bu- in this particular instance, the Buddha isn't, uh, even though I don't think it's, it's appropriate to be interested in one or the other, but um, the instruction is just uh, sensitive to, in- to impermanence or inconstancy. Breathing in, aware of impermanence. Breathing out, aware of impermanence. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Paul. And well, I guess the other comment I had related to your comment was, you know, it's just amazing or interesting how the mind <clears throat> organizing organizes the experience or even conceptualizes our experiences, you know, of impermanence, you know, like arising happens here and cessation happens there. It's like a locality. Yeah, it, it, it projects or it, uh, it's like a way of holding the experience. But this isn't bad, neither good nor bad. It's the mind just does this. This particular aspect of the mind, the thinking mind, is very quick and it immediately, in a sense, tells itself what's happening. So something's happening, something's being known, and part of that is the mind telling itself what's being known. And it's just important to, to recognize it as you did, like that that's also there. Because... Any idea of location is a concept, although maybe a very subtle one, right? Because location doesn't exist except as a construction of our mind. Because in a more <clears throat> direct sense, everything is happening here. It's only when we're in this relative world of me and you and that we need things like time and location but in, in, in a direct, mindful way, whatever it is, it's just here, being known here. Other thoughts about practice?
practice and this work with the five faculties. Yeah, uh, bodily fabrication. Um, one trains oneself to um, be sensitive to the whole body, and then the next, the fourth instruction is to calm bodily fabrications. So, another way it's translated is formations. So, the body, the mind, experience, we're constructing physical, and then in the second set of four, looking at how we construct mental formations, mental experiences. So we're calming it. And, you know, sometimes we experience in meditation that <clears throat> the construction of having a body actually begins to fall apart or fall away or diminish. <clears throat> and it feels more like space than it does like what we normally take our body to be. And it's just... We're not cons- the mind isn't constructing bodily formations. It's not constructing this idea that there is this thing with weight and solidity and these other qualities that's here now. It's just not constructing it. And so what is the experience of the body when the mind isn't constructing the body? So by being aware of the body, then we're calming the need to build or make anything around the body. And the body has a, because it's has sort of a more of a fluid, light, ephemeral feeling. And uh, that's calming. And same thing with mental formations. You know, we're um, noticing rapture, noticing the pleasantness of that experience. And then noticing mental formations, noting, noticing what the mind is doing and noticing that just having the intention for the mind to quiet down, honey, it's okay. Now you don't need to think or construct anything with the mind because there's already some happiness or some pleasantness. The mind is willing, you know, can be coaxed into a quietness not having to construct thoughts about this or that, even thoughts about whether my practice is going well, we don't need to have. So we're just, the. Uh, although we normally, in, in normal life, we're just not aware of it, not sensitive enough to be aware of it, but we're constructing our physical and mental experience all the time. Most of what we take to be reality is a construction of the mind. And that, that activity of constructing the physical and mental experience can be quieted down, which allows the mind to understand things that it wouldn't otherwise understand. That's the third set of four instructions where the Buddha invites us to be sensitive to the whole mind. Because the mind isn't so engaged in constructing physical and mental experience, then it all of a sudden can begin to intuit the space in which all this construction has been going on, the space of now or the space of the mind, and how, and then just to appreciate that unformed mind, you know, the mind, the workshop where nothing's going on, <laughs> just to appreciate that, I 
pick the phrase there is uh, satisfying the mind or gladdening the mind. And then the, the next is um, steadying the mind, like appreciating the stillness of that non-activity, not constructing physical and mental experiences. Not constructing physical and mental experiences in terms of an I. It doesn't mean things aren't happening, but the mind isn't doing that construction. Like It's really constructing meaning. So we're giving meaning to the body and to the mind in terms of me, in terms of an I. That's the construction that ends, or can quiet down at least. And then the last in that set of four is breathing in, breathing out, releasing the mind. So in a way, it's like a a deeper trust or a letting go into the space of the mind, like really learning to take refuge there. Normally, we're taking refuge in the activity of our constructions or the form or shape of our constructions, maybe it's better to say, through attachment. But now we're taking refuge not so much in that activity of making meaning, but we're taking refuge in the space or the emptiness of the heart or mind. And that just turns out to be a great place then to contemplate impermanence or the nature of things which causes a deeper letting go in the mind. So that's how I interpret the instructions. Anything else before we go on? Yeah, Judy. Yeah. Well, here we are, you know, we're with the movement of the breath. And so, and then really at this point, you know, as we're breathing in, we're aware of the whole physical, psychological processes together, really, you know, because we've been observing aspects of the mind all along, as well as the physicality, the body and the breath in the body. So really we're breathing in aware of everything and breathing out of everything. So we don't really need to go anywhere to contemplate impermanence because there's this experience right here, whatever it is for you. And even if there's a lot of neurotic thinking about how to contemplate impermanence, even that can be observed in terms of impermanence, like how the thoughts, how the reactive neurotic thinking is itself expressing the truth of impermanence. No matter what the mind observes, what we're really interested in is how it's expressing impermanence. Absolutely everything is expressing impermanence. We're just noticing that. Whether it's noticing the arising or or the ceasing or just the ephemeral nature, like before something is really known, it can be grasped, it's already something else. Or it might be, depending on how sensitive the mind is, how deep the samadhi is, it might be just the mind is caught in this experience of reality, like, okay, this is what's happening. And then in a moment of distraction, then the mind comes to, and in that next moment of mindfulness, you're realizing this moment is not that last moment. And in a way, you'll, you'll begin to have a sense of this is a different reality than that previous moment I was aware of. And then you get, you know, caught in thought about that, you know, and then you, the mind comes to and it's aware and it realizes now this 
is different. This is a different reality yet again. So it's getting a sense that so there may not be a fluid sense of change or ephemeral just because of the how the Ajita Samadhi is, but more like episodic, like now this, now this, now this. And really getting a sense that whatever it was a moment ago is just not here. Now it's this. This like we can say in a really gross sense, you know, this is not noontime anymore. You know, whatever noontime was for us today, it's not this. That's just gone. And now it's this. Yeah. It seems like the awareness is, becomes much faster than the thoughts. Like the thoughts begin to trail and be like an actor. Like the thoughts are almost like coming. It's just like you could see the uh, sort of conditionality of the thoughts explaining it when you're, you're already aware of it and the thoughts come after. It's like you don't even need the thoughts because the awareness is already there and the thoughts are just kind of mumbling underneath it. It's like, well, yeah, duh. Yeah, it's unnecessary, like because it's already not. That's when they start kind of settling or disappearing. That's right. Yeah, what what that sounds like to me is uh, like having insight into how um, there's this neurotic pattern of narrating experience to ourselves, which of course always has to be behind the game, right? And uh, how um, inherently unsatisfying it is when it's seen, you know, because it's it's like uh, it's like the news um, when you go down downtown St. Paul. The news is always kind of <laughs> on that billboard thing. Like those are the thoughts just running it. Yeah, yeah. Kind of repetitious pattern. Yeah, yeah. It's a particular insight into dukkha, actually. Just that uh, senseless activity of mind and the, the efforting involved. The mind can't stop, like wanting to stop it is frustrating, you know. You can get that on all kinds of levels, so that's a very, very subtle level. But just, you know, you can be walking around downtown or anywhere and just in a sense, with a wide perspective, just aware of movement, like all the activity and how so much of that activity isn't really about anything or isn't about anything important, you know, but just activity to fill up space, which is what the mind does a lot of the time. Last thoughts about the practice tonight? And we'll have time, feel free also uh, in the discussion, in my comments about uh, concentration to raise any questions you have. So I'm sure most people realize that samadhi, this fourth aspect of the five faculties is really highlighted quite a bit in the Buddhist teachings and um, I think it drives some people crazy um, because it, it, for a lot of us, it can trigger that uh, whole idea of attainment. We hear concentration and we hear some of the effects or we hear people's comments about their own practice and it's different than our experience and it can create feelings of inadequacy, um, 
competition, wanting to get somewhere, attachment. So I think it's really important to understand that concentration is uh, a natural state of mind instead of thinking about it as an attainment. Understand it better as a something that can be let go into. So that the distractions or an obscuration, a disturbance on something that's already still and whole. Now these are the qualities we associate with concentration or samadhi, stillness, that unification, wholeness. So instead of this more neurotic idea that I'm going to really work hard to get my mind concentrated and it would be really good, which generally agitates us, disturbs the mind. You know, it's a big distraction, actually. Here's some comments from the Buddha. Just as an arrowsmith shapes an arrow to perfection, so does the wise person shape the mind, which is fickle, unsteady, vulnerable, and erratic. How good it is to rein the mind, which is unruly, capricious, rushing wherever it pleases. The mind so harnessed will bring one happiness. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own unguarded thoughts. A well-directed mind creates more well-being than even the loving actions of parents toward their children. A wise person should pay attention to the mind, which is difficult to perceive. It is extremely subtle and wanders wherever it pleases. The mind well guarded and trained will bring one happiness. It always amazes me, you know, just how little we, how little emphasis or attention we give to the mind. My brother sent me a link to one of the TED Talks. Um, I don't know when it was done. I don't even remember the person's name. He's one of these positive psychology people. And I'm not sure if he's a professor. Sounds like he does a lot of consulting work for education organizations and corporations, but maybe he's also associated with the university. He gave a very funny and great talk. And he just, you know, was saying, uh, making the point how important one's attitude is for happiness. And this is essential with concentration too. And that is what I was sort of saying a few minutes ago. The attitude we have about concentration really affects our work with concentration. And that's generally true with the whole path. And why it's why I think in this particular formulation, these teachings around the five faculties, the Buddha puts confidence or faith first. Because by definition, this confidence or faith is pointing to a wholesome state of mind. Like when we feel confident, when we have faith, he's really talking about faith or trust in our own heart. You know, that's a good feeling, like a a sense of trust in our own life, in our own heart, a basic goodness here. 
Now, that's not often how we start our spiritual practice. You know, mostly we think, I've been bad today, now I need to clean up my act. You know, I, I did this, I did that, you know, I drank too much caffeine, I read that website, I shouldn't have gone there. You know, I've been thinking, hating this person all day long. And then it's like, we're going to do an enema. <laughs> we're going to go sit and uh, get rid of all that disgusting stuff. But the thing is, I'm, I'm, there's certainly elements. It's totally understandable that we can come up with that attitude about meditation. But you know, the understanding the actual science, what would really make that work, if that's where we're at, sort of aware of all the disgusting things we've been doing with our mind all day long, how polluted it is, then to actually have a successful meditation period it would be good at that point to cultivate compassion for all the frustration or all the leftover baggage because then we'd have a wholesome state of mind to begin with. We'd appreciate right then and there that this heart can hold in a skillful way whatever's been done today, whatever is left over now. And so I think that's really what faith is about. It's faith that no matter where we are, what we've set in motion, that there's something we can do about it. We're not damned. You know, and one of the great things about a fluid process is there's no ultimate damnation in the Buddhist system. You know, it, it's true that we can we can set in motion really unwholesome consequences, but it's never over. You know, it doesn't end there. There's always then, okay, so what do we, now that we've set in motion, now that we've done all these bad things today, now it still matters what we do now. It never makes sense to give up because we can always do something about it. And that's the initial part of faith is that well, there's something to do. We have faith that there's a path or that there's a practice. There's something we can do that will have wholesome consequences, will modify Whatever we've done that has been unwholesome, we can do something now that will modify that. Like that simile the Buddha has about, you know, you can put a cup of salt in a, a pint of water and it's going to have a huge effect, or you can put a pint of salt, a cup of salt rather, in the one of the Great Lakes and it's going to have very small effect. And that's what we can do. We can become that lake, that big lake. And so we still have the consequences of our actions, but it's not so bad. And then, so out of that faith, that initial wholesome state of mind, that's where we want, that's where we need the effort to come out of that. Otherwise, if effort's coming out of a narrow, uh, self-centered, negative state of mind, then the efforting is going to be tainted by the view that it came out of. So then we will strive to attain something for me or we will strive to destroy things to get, a, to get rid of the bad. We're basically going to be engaged in greed, anger and delusion if we make effort from that self-centered point of view. The self, in a way, can o- only has three movements. Disconnecting, destroying or pushing away and grasping, you know, taking a hold of, getting attached to. That's what the self can do. 
So faith is our initial step outside of self-centered activity into love, into compassion, into some wholesome aspiration of letting go, that it's possible to put down the burden. And then our effort comes out of that, and our effort is, well, if freedom is possible, then what's in the way of it now? So immediately the effort is directed toward letting go of what's in the way to peace, what's in the way of peace or happiness. Clearing the way, you know, to seeing more deeply. So initially, you know, we talked briefly a couple of weeks ago about one aspect of right effort is the four exertions. Where we're exerting ourselves to abandon what's unwholesome and exerting the mind to cultivate what's wholesome. So if we have a sense that peace is possible, letting go, love, ease is possible, then we want to get a sense of what's going on. So we abandon any obscurations, anything that gets in the way of clarity, and we cultivate whatever supports clarity. And these are the four exertions. And that allows for mindfulness. Once we've gotten rid of, abandoned what's in the way of being mindful and called up maintaining the qualities of mind we need to be mindful, then we can be mindful. And the Buddha teaches us to be mindful of the body and mind. Those are the four foundations. You know, we're mindful of the body and feeling and mind states and mind objects or the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the mind. So we're mindful of the mind and body. And then we discover as we're mindful of the mind and body or the present moment that with continuity, there's this this transformation that I mentioned earlier. You could call it a tipping point. But when we when we have sort of gotten rid of the states of mind that prevent mindfulness, we put them down, like greediness or fear or aversion or restlessness, the five hindrances. So we put down the five hindrances. Most of you know these, but I'll just go through them quick. In fact, this is our next Buddhist studies class. So we have greed or craving, aversion, restlessness, dullness, and doubt. So the exertions put them aside to, to some degree at least, initial degree. They're not overwhelming the mind at least. And then we can be aware of things as they are, the body and mind as it actually is. And we have this opportunity to cultivate a continuity. And this continuity really comes from interest. How can we have a continuous mindfulness? Or what's in the way of continuous mindfulness? If you didn't get a chance to read Sarah Sarah Dowring's article, here's what she says. I, I don't think I've read this piece before, this section before. Careful attention in itself creates interest, for it brings us close to experience, increasingly close, so that we see the texture, the detail, the remarkable wonder of experience. In the doing, there comes a brightness and a vividness to things. Emily Dickinson knew this quality well. She lived a very quiet life, saw few people, and spent most of her time alone in her room. Yet she was so attentive and saw with such uh, sensitivity and precision that she could only sum up her experience in this way. 
to live is so startling, there's little time for anything else. And you know, there's some funny statements like when you know, being bored means we're not paying enough attention. And it's true. Anything that we bring a careful attention to is actually interesting. So the interest comes from applying the mind. What makes us bored is when we're, the mind is flitting about in a superficial way, not really connecting with any experience. And then everything feels uninteresting, unimportant. But it's uninteresting and unimportant because the mind hasn't really connected with it. And the reason that everything is inherently interesting is that everything will express anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And I guarantee you these things are interesting for the mind. The mind, by definition really, is interested in anicca, dukkha, anatta. So the impermanent, unsatisfying, and impersonal nature of any mental or physical experience, any experience whatsoever, when the mind really connects. And we'll talk, this is what we'll talk about next week, these three characteristics that really lead to letting go, understanding these underlying qualities of all experience. But it, but it really demands this interest. And we have to overcome a lot of faith. You know, we call this wrong faith. A lot of wrong faith in uh, our superficial sense of things. Like we're, we feel, don't we, so often that we don't need to pay close attention. It's like life doesn't deserve our full attention because it's only a Monday night class at Common Ground or it's only, you know, this body experience. And it just so feels so strongly that it's unimportant. This is a fun poem. Um, I forget now the translator of that great uh, collection of poems by Havis, this Persian poet from nine, eight hundred years ago. And this one's called, the book is called The Gift, and this is Throw Me on a Scale. Today love has completely gutted me. I am lying in the market like a filleted grouper. Speechless, every desire and sinew absolutely silent, but I am still so fresh. Everything is now the same to me. Listen, the touch of a beautiful woman as she lifts me near, drawing my scent into her body, she thinks about taking me home. The touch of a wondrous fly drinking my vital fluids through a strange shaped flute. The sun laying its radiant gaze upon my cheek. Human voices and the breeze from a passing horse's tail. All send miraculous currents into my world. God's beauty has split me wide open. Throw Havis on a scale. Wrap me in a cloth. Bring me home. Lift a piece of my knowledge to your lips so I can melt inside of you and sing. This is what poets can do sometimes. You know, they can shock us or shake us out of our superficiality and just, you know, realizing a world that we've been missing so much of the time. 
any, you know, not just poets, but crises can do this too. You know, how alive we, we get when there's been a close call, like we've had an accident or something. You know, all of a sudden the mind is so vivid. And the difference is that now we're interested. You know, you can be driving home in outer space and then there's a close call, you know, somebody, you almost hit somebody. And all of a sudden, now, being in traffic is very interesting. <laughs> Seems worthy of our attention. Or when and I had an argument the other night, other day, and it's like, uh, you know, you can be in automatic pilot in your relationships, and then, then you have one of those earth-shattering arguments, and and all of a sudden the relationship is relevant again. <laughs> it's, like, it's like not something you take for granted, or same, you know, you're healthy and then you get sick, and all of a sudden you really listen to the body. You're wondering, like. Is that feeling, that sensation related to this or not? And this is the key with our practice. You know, if we want to... We can be mindful in a superficial way and we'll have relatively superficial insights that will be useful and we'll become wiser and more skillful in life. But what really sends our practice to a whole nother level is when the concentration deepens. And what allows that to happen is interest. We respect the present moment enough that there's a wholeheartedness in what we're doing. And this is a kind of love. This is what I meant before, that it really has to come out of a wholesome mind state. It can't be like from competition. (laughs) You know, I don't want anybody else to get ahead of me. Or something like that, or whatever. You know, I hate this world. I want to get somewhere else. It really has to be uh, like a, a wholesome devotion to the present moment, or deep, profound sense of awe for the unknown, like a respect for the unknown. And then uh, one of the best ways I've heard this described by Joseph Goldstein. You know, he talks about a bowl inverting. So it starts upside down the bowl. And it's like we're working hard because we're inspired. We have faith that it's relevant, that there's something to wake up to. We keep bringing our attention to the present moment and it rolls off. It immediately rolls off. There's no stability to the practice. But that's okay because we're persistent. And we bring the attention back to the present moment. We connect with the body or mind, whatever's predominant. And then we get distracted and we take the attention we bring it back. But if we do that with enough persistence enough continuity, then it's as if the bowl inverts. It's the same thing, but now the attention, like the whole mind is shaped in a way that supports the continuity of awareness. The mind likes to be in the present moment. It doesn't like to be distracted. It still can be distracted. You think about a marble in a perfectly round bowl. You know, any little bump to the bowl and that marble is going to do its thing. But its tendency... Now, the gravitational pull is different. Its tendency is to come back to center. It's not like we have to make personal effort to come back. Sometimes people describe this, I describe this sometimes this way too, as a sense of being held. The mind, the attention is sort of held in the present moment. With some effort, you could think about 
you could generate, the mind could generate a thought about, oh yeah, tomorrow I have to do this, or, oh, I've been sitting this long, or when is the bell going to ring? The mind can generate, but it's almost like it's, it's got to make some effort because it's being held in the present moment. It has to make some effort to get into that conceptual activity. And then, as soon as that effort stops, it wants to rest back at that place, that center place. So this is, uh, you know, there's ways to talk about this flip. Uh, One of the things I sent you today, everybody in the mailing list today, is a chapter from a great book. I, I recommend everybody have a copy, at least on your computer. If not printed out, you can order a book of it, but it's also online. It's Bhikkhu Bodhi's um, little book called The Noble Eightfold Path, The Way to the End of Suffering or something like that. Um, but I have the title there in the email. And uh, you can take a look at the chapter on concentration. And in that chapter on concentration, Bhikkhu Bodhi um, outlines, as he does so well in this book, you know, the teachings around concentration in this case and the five jhanic factors. And these five factors really explain that flipping of the bowl. It's a, it's a description of the coherence of samadhi. You know, when samadhi comes online, the quality or the shape of the mind actually changes. It's a, a bit of a metamorphosis. You know, we have our ordinary, dissipated, scattered, fragmented mind. But through the persistent effort of connecting with the body and mind as it actually is, right? So the effort to put down the forces of distraction and to connect with the present moment experience of the body or mind, moment by moment by moment, make that effort. And in a way, it heats up the mind. And the mind becomes really fluid. It's funny, it could be, on the one hand, it becomes very malleable, very functional, but it's also stable. It has a sense of stability, or I used the word a moment ago, sense of being held. Or another word that's used is a sense of unification. And it's really pleasant. That's a pleasant feeling. And then this is, it's this mind, whether you want to call that, sometimes maybe you'd call that axis concentration before the deeper states of absorption. But in axis concentration, the sense of being held, the hindrances are now well retreated from the mind. The mind isn't restless it isn't dull. It isn't uh, afflicted by doubt or aversion or craving. All of that has retreated. And so the mind is free. It's liberated from the hindrances, which is what we call right concentration or right samadhi, is this place where the mind is unafflicted by the hindrances. And so this is the mind that sees things as they are. This is the mind that has insight. And remember again, it all flows out of wholesome states of mind. So when you're confused about how to start over again, remember we have to start over from a wholesome state of mind. If you're really in a difficult place, then the way to reestablish a wholesome state of mind is to have compassion for how yucky the situation is for you right then and there. Because that's a wholesome state of mind. And you can begin to rebuild the mind 
the, the, the development of samadhi. The other thing that's really emphasized in, the, in being skilled at samadhi is developing this foundation of sila. Uh, sila, again, is ethical conduct. So one of the things that gets in the way, for example, of having a wholesome state of mind to begin with is we have a lot of guilt for all the bad things we're doing in our lives. <coughs> so if we get really interested in the importance of this powerful concentration, this balance of mind, then we'll be inspired to really clean up all of our relationships in life so they're harmonious. And if we've caused problems, harmed people in the past, then to make amends as best we can. So that when the mind gets quiet, we're not tormented by the memories of all the unfinished places in our life. We've done the work. It doesn't mean we've had a perfect life. It just means that as best we can, we've taken care of any unfinished business. And we're not creating any new unfinished business in our days. So then when we sit and there is this quieting of the mind, this continuity of mindful awareness isn't going to be disturbed by feelings of guilt and remorse. Because that's what comes up when the mind gets quiet. That and movies you haven't digested. (laughs) All the provocative scenes from movies and your life that were too intense in the moment and you did this, you know, or one way or another, you didn't just digest it completely in the moment, then all that stuff starts to show itself as the mind gets quieter and quieter. So this is one of the great uh, um, efforts that is required. It's a different effort than the initial effort to put aside, you know, what's afflicting the mind in order to be able to connect with the present moment. There's a more subtle effort of being patient with all the stuff that begins to arise naturally as the mind quiets down, becomes more sensitive. So no matter what arises, it's arising. So we have to work with it. We have to let it come and let it go. I mean, at this level, it's not like necessarily you have to put it down or you have to do something, but you have to watch it come and watch it cease. Watch it come and watch it cease. Because if you don't watch it, the mind will get identified with it and then you'll be off reacting to it or thinking about it. Well, I can say more about concentration, but there's just 10 minutes left. Maybe I'll leave it here. Um, But if nobody has any comments, maybe I'll say a few things about the jhanic factors. Any comments so far or questions that come up? Experiences from your own practice you feel like sharing with the group? That might be relevant for others to hear. Well, then I'll just say a little bit more specifically about the jhanic factors, and then you can look for them in your practice. You know, these jhanic factors are used um, both to understand what leads to what I called a moment ago axis concentration. But also, uh, each of the four jhanas 
um, are described in terms of the balance of these five jhanic factors. So the first jhanic factor, uh, vitaka, sometimes translated as initial thought or directed thought or initial application of mind or the mind connecting. So this quality of mind, this capacity of mind to connect, it's uh, the simile sometimes is striking a bell, that strike. So it's really, it's the most aggressive or active part of these five jhanic factors. The first one, the grossest one, where the mind is literally connecting with the object or meeting the object, knowing the object. And it's rough in that sense, right? Because I'm connecting with this object, I'm connecting with this object. There's a real sense of, of wholesome desire in this case to connect. Later in the deeper states of concentration, this is not a useful uh, quality of mind to be active. But initially, we can't do without it. The mind needs to have that desire to connect. And then the second one, you can probably guess, which is the desire to sustain, the, the capacity of the mind to sustain its attention, not to forget the present moment, not to per- forget what's predominant. So in terms of the breath, it's sort of not to forget the breath. It doesn't matter that other objects are coming and going, but it's not forgetting the breath because it's using the breath as a tether to the present moment. In other styles of meditation, you know, we're, we're just letting the attention go to whatever's predominant. So then you don't need to hold to the particular object like the breath, the sensations of the breath, that it's connecting and sustaining with the present moment. And so the image for the sustaining or the, so the initial and then the sustained application of mind is another way it's these first two jhanic factors are described, connecting and sustaining or the initial and sustained application of mind. It's like the mind's not forgetting, it's not leaving the present moment. And it's the resonance of the bell. So you get the initial strike and then you, and then the bell continues to resonate. And that's the sustaining. So it's a different kind of efforting. You know, the effort to connect is much grosser than the effort required to sustain attention. And then it starts getting much more refined. So then, with that connecting and sustaining, then joy arises or rapture arises. (coughs) The energy builds. When the mind is connecting and sustaining... It's not, the energy of the mind isn't being dissipated. So here, joy isn't something the mind does. It's something that happens when the energy of the mind isn't being fragmented through distraction. When there's enough non-distraction, when the mind is sustained enough, then that collection, that sort of non-dispersed energy is experienced as rapture. That's what rapture is. The mind, in a sense, is discovering the potential of energy that is normally broken up or fragmented or dispersed through all of the neurotic activity of worrying and planning and second-guessing or meditation and all that kind of stuff. So then there's waves, thrills, 
Sometimes it's just a pervasive lightness. Sometimes it's strong movements. Even the body can move sometimes. So it's a, the rapture has all. They're all different sort of qualities of rapture. Some more intense. Some more subtle. Waves of joy. Even like that feeling when your hair stands up on end. That little thrill. You know when there's on the edge of danger or mystery. Even that's a kind of rapture, isn't it? And it, where is it coming from? Well, it's coming because the mind is wrapped. It's connecting and sustaining with, you know, the spooky sound we heard, right? So it's the same. That's the same formula. Works for those ordinary situations we have in life, when we're you know home alone and hear a sound and the mind is riveted. <laughs> so that's that connecting and sustaining. And then rapture will come from that. And then when that rapture sustains enough, it's like that uh, it, the pleasantness of the rapture causes the heart, the neurotic heart, to begin to relax. And sukha is the fourth. So we have vitaka, vichara, connecting, sustaining. Piti is rapture. And then uh, sukha sometimes translated as happiness. I like the word ease because it has a, a visceral feeling to it. Um, but it's like, a, for me, it's experientially, it's like a melting of the heart. You might not even notice the heart was tight, but all of a sudden, there's a, the mind-heart relaxes. It's like something that it was doing, it feels it doesn't have to do anymore. And that's happiness. It's like the happiness of not needing to do anything begins can have the flavor of contentment. And it's very pleasant, still very pleasant. So as we, as the mind is, uh, as these qualities get stronger, then the connecting and sustaining become less important because the mind doesn't need to take its attention and connect with the present moment because the present moment is so pleasant, more and more pleasant, that this is, you know, we're getting to the point now where the bowl is overturned and the mind isn't seeking interesting experiences to pay attention to. It isn't being drawn out. I mean, it might be drawn out if something big happens, something big arises, but its tendency is to come back because it likes being present in that feeling of rapture and ease, sukha. And then the fifth of the five jhanic factors is one-pointedness, ikagata, or stillness. And as this gets stronger, as this becomes more predominant and the connecting and sustaining go away, there's a whole shift. Like in the beginning of the concentration states, you know, it's really important that it's pleasant. The pleasantness is what really supports the integrity of the concentration. But as a kagata, as this aspect of mind gets stronger, then what really supports the concentration isn't the pleasantness, it's the peacefulness. And in order for peacefulness to dominate the mind, pleasantness has to retreat. Because as long as things are really pleasant, it's going to activate grasping. So the way the mind frees itself from grasping is it, it begins to notice stillness and equanimity and peacefulness to such a degree that it's not interested in pleasantness anymore. So it's like pleasantness, 
and unpleasantness aren't relevant to the mind. The only thing that's really of interest to the mind is stillness, peacefulness, neutrality. It's a, actually a deeper kind of happiness than the happiness that's associated with a pleasant feeling, with a rapture, which is a more energetic, pleasant feeling, or sukha, which is a more relaxed, content, easeful, pleasant feeling. So this is just some background. You can get some more by reading what Bhikkhu Bodhi has to say about concentration. And I'm sure many of you have good books in your library about concentration, so you can also revisit some of that. And most of the articles that were sent earlier in the course have sections on concentration, so you can go back to those and reread those sections, um, including you know, the Jack Hornfield and Joseph Goldstein's book, Seeking the Heart of Wisdom, was sent. Somebody scanned that earlier in the class, and Sarah Doring's article, and a couple of the others. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Noticing these five qualities, the quality of mind that connects and sustains with the breath, with the moment, the sounds. And beginning to notice the aliveness, just the beginnings of rapture when the mind is enlivened through its connection with the present moment, its sustained connection, its enlivening, which quiets the heart. The heart feels happy and content. And maybe realizing a stillness, a deep peace, deep in the heart. place to reside, to replenish, to feel safe. Have a good week, everyone. See you next Monday.